Now then, with a view to God's help, let's uh, turn to John chapter 2 again. And reading at verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, and that's written concerning the Messiah in Psalm 69, Zeal for your house has eaten me up, or zeal for your house has devoured me. Now, as it happens, our theme uh, tonight is very close, really, to our theme this morning. It, it wasn't my intention as such that that would be so, but it was obviously uh, God's purpose. It is again the holiness of God that very much comes before us tonight and its implications for ourselves personally and as a congregation of worshippers. Now, after uh, his first miracle or sign, as John calls it, when he turns water into wine, we find the Lord more or less immediately making his way to Jerusalem for the first time because the feast of the Passover, the annual feast of the Passover, is due. It isn't, of course, Christ's first visit, strictly speaking, because at least since he was 12, he attended the Passover every year and partook of it. And it's more than likely, even before he was 12, that he attended the feasts regularly with Joseph and Mary and the family. But this is his first visit as the Anointed One. It's his first visit as the Christ, the Messiah, after his anointing at the River Jordan. And perhaps the visit begins in Jerusalem in a very unexpected way. Um, Certainly it begins in the temple in a very unexpected way. I'm quite sure if you'd have told most people that the Messiah was going to visit the temple, they would have expected something very, very different from what actually happened. That is, unless they had been reading their Old Testament prophecies very, very closely. Because Malachi certainly said, as he was bringing the curtain down on Old Testament revelation, a good 400 years, at least before the Lord's advent, He said that God would send his messenger, capital M, and that he would suddenly appear at the temple, and that he would purge and purify the sons of Levi. And this work of purging and purification was going to be so great that he said, who can abide the day of his coming? 
He says that to a people who were supposedly delighting in the Messiah. Of course, they didn't delight in him when he came. There are plenty of people who like to think warm things about Christ, but if Christ was to appear, they would soon discover that he's very different from how they conceive him to be. But when the Messiah, in whom you supposedly delight, comes to his temple, who will abide the day of his coming? So, maybe it shouldn't be so much of a surprise that when the Lord comes to the temple, it doesn't quite work out as people would expect. Now, before we take a close look at this incident, I think it's important for us just to stand back for a while and to consider what the temple itself is. And it's very important to do that. As Presbyterians, I think we are losing sight of what the temple was as a place of worship in distinction from what the synagogue was as a place of worship. Because people are confused about these things, they're confused about worship. Period. What was the temple? What was it for? Well, I suppose the first thing to say about it is that it was a single centralised place of worship in the very heart of Jerusalem. And as a centralised place of worship, it was completely different from every other place of worship in the whole of Israel or Judah. Every town, every village, more or less, had their place of worship. The general term for it, the specific term most often used was synagogue, which means to gather together. And every single Lord's Day they would worship there in a way that we recognise very easily. They would sit as we do, although there would be an elder's bench. They would sing psalms. They would pray. There would be a reading from the law or the prophets. And there would be an exposition, a message that was based on the law and the prophets. And that, friends, was the regular Lord's Day service that every single Jewish man and woman attended every single Saturday, or Lord's Day as it was then. The centralised temple was completely different. There was actually, in many respects, hardly any similarity, at least at first sight, between the two places of worship. And in fact, if your first visit to the temple was, let's say, as a 12-year-old, going up to be uh, examined and to receive the Passover for the first time, you would hardly believe what you were seeing. It was different to the eye, different to the ear, and was even different to the nose. There was a priesthood there, vestments, sacrifices, altars, incense, and blood, and Levites with their instruments of music. Everything just appeared so different. Why? Why do you have hundreds of places of worship that look one way, and one place of worship that looks another way? Well, the reason for that is really quite straightforward. The centralised place of worship called the temple, or the tabernacle originally, that was replaced by a temple, the centralised place of worship worked on two levels. First, it worked 
as a picture. It was meant to be a visual presentation of none other than the Messiah himself, the Christ to come. It was a visual presentation of who he was and what he would do. And everything in connection with the tabernacle and later the temple was designed to teach all that. There was symbolic meaning. There was no symbolism in the synagogue, just as there's no symbolism here. I mean, the the only time we ever have symbolism is when the water of baptism is administered and when the bread and the wine are administered in the Lord's Supper. That's the only occasion, and thereby Christ's express commandment. The synagogue had no symbolism. Prayer, singing, preaching, things we're familiar with. The temple's full of symbolism. The altar spoke about Christ. The priest spoke about Christ. The lampstand spoke about Christ. The table with the bread on it spoke about Christ. The Ark of the Covenant spoke about Christ. The Shekinah Glory spoke about Christ. Everything spoke about Christ. Everything. God willing, as we're working our way through Exodus, as the Lord enables us, we'll come to the tabernacle and its furniture, its equipment, its priesthood, and all these things more plainly. But the point for now is that they all speak of the Christ to come. So the centralized place of worship was a picture, temporary picture. Once Christ came, all that went. The musical instruments went. The priesthood went. The vestment went. The altar went. The sacrifice went. The blood went. All goes, and you're simply back to the local place of worship again. To understand that is to understand a lot. It's amazing how many people just don't seem to appreciate that. But as well as functioning as a picture, the temple also functions as a place of worship. A place of worship. People went there to pray. Yes, to observe, to listen. But they went to pray. And of course... When Christ says that my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, by prayer he he means worship generally. Sometimes we have expressions like that. For example, I remember when local meeting houses would sometimes be called in Gaelic Taileri, a reading house. Um, The Jews actually have that custom of referring to some local meeting places as a a reading house, Taileri. That doesn't mean that you just read in these places. There was prayer there too. There was worship there. That's what house of prayer symbolizes here. It's a place of worship. My father's house shall be called a house of worship and a place of prayer, but you have turned it into a house of merchandise, of buying and selling, or later, as the Lord says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And not only did it function as a place of worship as such, but Christ tells us on a later occasion, no. I'll explain that later because there are two temple cleansings in the Lord's ministry. Not one, but two. On the second occasion when he cleanses the temple, he doesn't just say that it's a house of prayer, but he calls it a house of prayer for all nations. My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The Lord is quoting there from Isaiah's prophecy. 
which Isaiah wrote 800 years before our Lord's own ministry. And Isaiah was looking forward to a time when the Lord's cause would widen out over all the earth. And he was looking forward to a time when the Gentiles would pour into the house of God so that the house of prayer that God had established would be indeed a house of prayer for all the nations. And to reflect that, the Jews actually added an additional court to the temple. So you had the temple proper, and I'm not going to explain what it consisted in, because that's not particularly important just now, precious and wonderful as it is. You had the temple proper, but outside it, and stuck onto it, they had built a court of the Gentiles. Which meant that if you were a Gentile, deeply interested in the things of God, if, if you had met Christian people or believing people, if you had come into contact with the Scriptures and you wanted to know about the Lord, if you wanted to travel to the Passover, like the Roman centurion or like the Ethiopian eunuch, you would make the journey yourself and there was a special court available to you. It was called, called the court of the Gentiles. It didn't mean that just the Gentiles could enter it, but it did mean that the Gentiles could go no further. In fact, that there was an inscription on the wall that separated that court from the temple proper, which forbade them to enter on pain of death. Um, when the Jews thought that Paul had taken a Gentile into that area of the temple, they tried to stone him. The inscription there was essentially saying, keep out, but that court belonged to him. It's a vast area, 750 square feet. Uh, there were sleeping quarters for the Levites to sleep in, those who were on duty in the temple. There was a synagogue built in the court of the Gentiles and places for prayer, for fellowship, for worship. That's, that's what it was for. Now, when the Lord visits this temple, he has a right to expect what he appointed it for. He's got a right to expect that when the people assemble for worship, worship is what they do. He has a right to expect that his father's house of worship will be filled with worshippers. After all, he owns the place. The place is actually prefiguring who he is and what he is. That's an astonishing thing that the person who's walking into the temple that day is the person whom the temple symbolizes and speaks about every square inch, every brick and stone. It's a temple that's meant to reflect his own glory and his own dignity. And he has a right to expect that. As he has a right to expect when he comes into this assembly that he finds worshippers in spirit and in truth. He has a right to that. But as we follow the Lord coming into the court of the Gentiles... I want us to consider a few things. There's a few headings here, but they're not all long. First of all, what the Lord meant. Second, what he did. Third, why he did it. Fourth, how he did it. And last of all, the response. Very straightforward. First of all, what did the Lord meet? Well, staggeringly, when he goes into the temple courts, he sees shops and shopkeepers and a currency exchange with money changers. And he hears, not prayers, 
or fellowship or singing, but the sound of animals, oxen, cattle, sheep, and the plank of money changing hands. Seems incredible, but just like every other sin that happens, there's always a reason for it. The reason is worth explaining, although it may take a little while. Most of the people uh, coming to the feasts in Jerusalem came from a big distance. The Jewish people were dispersed. You would find them in Africa, in Asia, and in Europe. And whenever they came to attend the feast of the Passover, they had a twofold problem. The first had to do with animals. Number one, you can't take them that kind of distance. And even if you did, you risk finding, once you've arrived in Jerusalem, that they're not clean animals. The sacrifices to be offered for God had to be clean. They were all representing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is spotless and pure, the Holy Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish. So all the animals had to be like that. So there's no point, even if you could take oxen all the way from Asia or Europe, to find that they're pronounced unclean and unfit for sacrifice. The second problem that faced you was currency, because in the temple, the only currency they accepted was the temple shekel. So you needed to change your money. Whatever coin you were bringing, from whatever part of the Roman realm, you needed to change your money into the temple shekel. So the solution to that was this. Number one, set up stalls for changing money. And number two, have a ready provision of animals that had already been pronounced clean and acceptable for sacrifice. So that you simply come, change your money, buy the animal, and you make your sacrifice. That explains the selection of animals here. Oxen, sheep, and doves. Doves were for poor people to offer. Um, it was a dove that Mary offered for her cleansing, which tells us that she was poor, the Lord's mother. I'll say something more about doves in a minute. But that was the sight that met the Lord's eyes and the sound that met his ears. What does he do? Well, he makes a whip. Now, this is unlike anything else that you see the Lord doing. This is very unlike the Prince of Peace. He makes a whip. He binds rushes together, strewn on the floor of the temple, and he binds them into small ropes, which he binds into a whip. That takes time, takes method. It's not just done in a few minutes. It's quite a laborious task. So whatever the Lord goes on to do, he doesn't do it in a bad temper. God forbid that we should ever think of him being in a bad temper anyway. Angry he may be, but there's nothing bad-tempered about it. There's nothing in the heat of the moment. There's nothing to indicate a man who was out of control. How can there be when this is the man who was always in control? A perfect man. And with this whip he drives out those who bought and who sold, as well as the money changers. It's possible that some use of the whip may have been symbolic. 
And just as we speak ourselves of cracking a whip, maybe it was enough to crack it. In any case, there's a response. All the animals are cleared out and the people are cleared out too. He then proceeds, and this is the most active you ever see the Lord in the Gospels. He proceeds to overturn the tables of the money changers so that the coins are all over the place. He turns over the seats of those who are selling the doves and he says to the doves owners, get these things out of here. That's what the Lord meant and that's what the Lord did. Why does he do it? Well, listen to his own words. They have turned the house of prayer into what he calls on the second occasion, like I said, I'll come to that later, into a den of thieves. Here he says, you've turned it into a house of merchandise, a house of business, a house of buying and selling. Later he says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now friends, what exactly is wrong? Well, first of all, in the house of God, he finds corruption and greed. It is well known amongst the Jews that these people were raking it in. The cost of changing money was a day's wages. Now think about that for a minute. The actual cost of changing your money was a day's wages. Even the doves, which were the sacrificial animal for the poor, were actually sold at Passover for four times the usual amount. Now, as we saw in the morning from Psalm 15, the Lord doesn't like excessive interest. We're told that the righteous man puts not his coin to usury. And the bottom line is, and if you have a business, you need to remember this, it's lawful to have a business and it's lawful to make a profit from it, But in God's eyes, unreasonable profit is theft, especially when it is taken from the poor. Unreasonable profit is theft, especially when it is taken from the poor. And all the Jews knew that this profit found its way to the priests, and especially to the households of the two high priests, that in itself is a bit of a conundrum, but Annas and Caiaphas, so much so that this whole carry-on in the court of the Gentiles was called the bazaars of Annas. They were wealthy, and they had become wealthy very often on the back of the Lord's people who were poor. So they were effectively bringing the ministry into disrepute. And it's a sad thing when the ministry comes to be related in any way to what Paul says, filthy lucre. And all those who preach the word, self included, must be very careful that the impression is never given that it is being done for the sake of money. But that was the impression given. When you went to the temple to worship, that's the impression given. It's like the impression you get when you put on the television and you you see quite a lot of evangelists and and they're wanting your money all the time. (laughs) They're wanting your money. You send them your money and they'll send you a handkerchief that they've blessed. People are taken in by that stuff. And they have private jets and they have gold taps on their baths. That's an extreme. 
But that should not make us think that there's nothing short of that extreme that isn't still abhorrent in the eyes of God. Let's make clear, friends, whether we're in the ministry or not, let's make clear that money is not what we live for, that our lives don't revolve around silver and gold, and let not the world think that they do. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, the Lord says to all of us. Don't lay up treasures upon the earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth or rust cannot corrupt, and where thieves cannot break through and steal. So there's corruption and greed. The Lord doesn't like it. Doesn't like greed. Doesn't like greed. The second problem in the temple was sacrilege and profanity. Profanity is what happens when you take something that's sacred and you treat it as though it's common. Let's say if, let's say when we were going to baptize somebody, if somebody just um, came and took off that water and, and used it for something else, that is profane. When somebody puts the Bible to a use that God does not want the Bible put to, that is profanity as well. Sacrilege is when you steal something that is holy. And there's no doubt that that is happening here. The court of the Gentiles was stuck onto the temple, but it was considered holy because it was stuck on. True, it was attached to the temple, therefore it was to be considered sacred. But look at, look at what's going on. God is being robbed of his praise in the court of the Gentiles. God's being robbed of his honour in the court of the Gentiles. God's being robbed of his glory in the sanctuary of the Gentiles. People are being robbed of their worship. They can't worship because of the noise, of the chaos, and the smell, and the money, and the greed, and the corruption. Of course, like everything bad, it was gradual. You all know the story of how the camel gets into the tent. It just asks if it can get its, its nose into the tent, and after a while... Okay, you can put your nose in. Then he asks him to take his ears in and so on. Before you know where you are, the camel's in the tent. That's the way it happened with this. It's, it's a commonly held belief that these shops and money exchanging places were outside the temple and had nothing to do with the temple, but they moved in. Everything moves in. Sin moves in. Corruption gradually comes in. And before you know where you are, everything's changed. Just little... By little. This was the only place the Gentiles had for prayer and fellowship. That's why the Lord purged it out. He wants people to be free to worship. He wants them to be free to worship as He commanded them to be worship to worship. And the honour of His name is important too. But how does the Lord do it? Now, by how there, I don't mean the mechanics. We know that he did it with a whip. When I'm asking here, how did he do it? What I'm asking is, in in what spirit did he do it? Let me say right away, without hesitation or apology, that he did it in anger. Now, I know that the word anger is not used here. That shouldn't deflect us from the fact that the word anger is used of the Lord elsewhere. So there's no point in saying that the Lord was never angry. He most certainly was. In Mark chapter 3, when he has taken the Pharisees to task, the word thumos is used, which means that, that he was just plain angry with the Pharisees. 
just as he was in Matthew 23 as well. And there's no doubt that even though it's not mentioned, it's here. There is such a thing as a righteous anger, is there not? Paul tells us in Ephesians to be angry but not to sin. And maybe that's not always easy. But it's important to remember that. Be angry but do not sin. In other words, be angry at the right thing, at the right time and to the right degree and express it in the right way. Be angry with sin. Be angry with it at the right time. Don't let it carry over and poison your life. Be angry to the right degree, as God would have you to be angry. Express it, in other words, in the right way. That's what the Lord's doing here. He's going around the court with a whip. There are thousands of people in there who are watching him. It's the first time they've ever seen him, and they can hardly believe what they're seeing, but they know that he's in earnest. He is actually angry. One indication that he never lost control... And of course he didn't, because we know theologically that he couldn't anyway. But one indication is that he doesn't touch the doves. I mean, if this was a man out of control, he'd have just knocked them sideways. But he doesn't touch them. He uses the whip to drive the animals. That's very understandable. But he just says to the people, get these doves out of here. This is no house of merchandise. Do you ever feel angry yourself at sin? It's not wrong to be angry with sin. In fact, it's wrong not to be angry with sin. Now, you and I may sometimes go wrong in how we express that anger. Maybe it's excessive sometimes, but even that is better than not being angry at all. God forbid that the day should come when people sin and we just don't care. And one of the problems is when you're used to sin, you sometimes cease to care. How many people were there in the temple who had just got used to this every time they got in? They just got used to it. Because, guess what? You get used to everything. Same-sex marriage was unbelievable ten years ago. Is it unbelievable now? Transgenderism is still nearly unbelievable. I was just talking to someone earlier today about when a succession of... Well, actually, actually this was at the time when um, the late Mary Mackay uh, was just passing away in Glasgow and just forgive this tangent for a while but I went to see her on the last occasion and uh, it was just the day when a succession of politicians were being asked what is a woman and they all had difficulty answering the question you know, oh don't, uh, don't ask that question you know, that's, don't lead me down that rabbit hole or let's not get sidetracked with anything she said well is that, a dif- is, that, is that actually a difficult question to answer what I said to her, Mary's two daughters, were that I would like to take these politicians in to see Mary Mackay and say, that's a woman for you there. That's a woman. That's a woman as, as God would have a woman to be too. Confusion. And we are staggered. But I hope the day doesn't come soon when we're just used to that. We're used to men being women and women being men and neither being neither. We need to ask God for preservation if we are living in Sodom preservation so that we wouldn't think like Sodom and be like Sodom because you just get used to things the Lord is angry at it he had seen it it wasn't his call in a sense to do what he did until he was the Messiah but he didn't get used to it the second thing and it's related to his anger is zeal 
when the disciples saw him clearing the temple, they remembered Psalm 69, which spoke about the Messiah to come, and which said, Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's the association the disciples made in their minds. They associated their Saviour there, cleaning the temple with a psalm that they had known since childhood. Zeal for your house consumes me. And they, of course, these words were, of course, Christ speaking about himself. I do this because I am consumed with zeal for your house. Friends, wouldn't it be good if we had that zeal ourselves for the house of God? Zeal for his worship, in other words. Zeal for his congregations. Zeal for the purity of these things. That they would be as God wants them to be. Zeal. It's a wonderful thing to see zeal in a Christian. A Christian alive. Ready to do things and wanting to do things. A Christian that's urgent and energetic. Not slothful and decaying. So he does it with anger and with zeal. And then again he does it. With authority. Now you'll notice that they do challenge him in verse 18. The Jews answered and said, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? In other words, you, you know, this, this, this is something that you, you, you are usurping the priests, you're usurping everybody here, cleaning, you're organizing this temple. Who do you think you are? And if you really have this authority, what sign do you show? Now, maybe on that day or just on the next few days, the Lord just began to perform signs. If you go down to verse 23, at this first Jerusalem feast, we're told that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So he was just about to perform signs, but... As yet, he hadn't done one in Jerusalem. But it's interesting that the Lord doesn't pander to their request for one. He never does. By the way, he won't pander to yours either. The, the Lord will give you signs. He gives me signs too, but not the ones you want. And not necessarily in the way you want it either. He, that's not the way the Lord is, because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. So he doesn't pander to the request. In fact, he, he puts out a kind of parable. He says... Destroy this temple. This is your sign. He says, destroy this place and I'll raise it up. This temple, I'll raise it up in three days. The Jews said, this has been 46 years in a rebuilding process and you can build it in three days. But John tells us that he was speaking about his body. Wasn't the time for a sign. He would do his signs in his time and in his way. But you know what strikes me the most here is uh, how little they press the issue. I don't know if that strikes you, but it strikes me. In one way, you'd have thought that the whole place would be livid and up in arms. and You'd think, in a way, that nobody would empty the place. You'd think that someone would catch him and deal with him. But no. What's the reason for that, friends? Well, I think you can pretty much call it the self-authenticating sign that he is in himself. 
he has a self-authenticating authority. Sometimes when real authority is present, you, you simply recognize it. That's all. You recognize it. And there were occasions in the Lord's life when he spoke and people just recognized the authority and nobody would lay hands on him. Nobody would touch him because there was just something about him. And that is true here. I mean, how does this man go through this building with a whip? Because he's got the power of God with him. He's got the authority of God. This is the messenger of God. He is appointed to cleanse the temple which reflects his own glory. (coughs) And the word of God is like that. You know, you may say, well, prove to me that the Bible is true. Well, there are interesting ways of going around about that. But, you know, when... God's word speaks, it's got a self-authenticating authority. It's an amazing thing. I would rather in that respect that an atheist heard a sermon rather than expose himself to a series of arguments. Because the word of God is self-authenticating. Spurgeon once said, you ask me to prove the Bible. He says, why should I do that? When you've got a lion, he says, you just let it roar. When you've got a lion, you just let it roar. And sometimes the word of God roars like that and you just know that that's what it is. And that's what the Savior was like too. A self-authenticating authority. Zeal, anger, authority. But let me also say importantly that there is love in it too. Sometimes when you see anger you think, well there can't be any love in that. Well God's been angry with me but he's had love in it. He's been angry with you and he's had love in it. There's love in this because Christ cares about the Gentiles. He he cares about the person who travelled all the way from Nigeria, Simon the Nigerian. There's a man from Niger in the scriptures. He cares about somebody who came all that way. He cares about the Ethiopian eunuch who comes all the way to worship God. And all he finds is the clank of money changers and the animals. God cares. Christ cares. Christ cares about worshippers wherever they are. And he wants worshippers in spirit and in truth to come to know and to love and to serve and to worship the living God. He cares about them. And it's for their sake that he cleanses the temple. Not just for his own sake. Not just for his own glory. But for the sake of those who want to see him in the court of the Gentiles, which is as far as they can go. What does all this say to us? I'm afraid I've run over my time, so let me just be as swift as I can with this. What does this say to us, all this? Well, first of all, something that I haven't maybe directly dealt with, and that's how persistent a thing sin is. Just a short three years afterwards, on the last week of his ministry, the Lord cleanses the temple a second time. And it's in the same kind of condition as he found it on the first year. In one way that's amazing, in another way it isn't. Change in one way is easy enough, but real lasting spiritual change is something else. I can imagine it didn't take too long for somebody just to set up another stall in the court of the Gentiles, and then somebody sets up another one. Then the money changer comes in, and before you know it's back where you were. You yourself maybe heard a sermon once that changed your life, and you stopped doing something. Maybe you really radically changed your life. But just for a time. 
that went out, but the real thing didn't come in. You, you didn't really call upon God to enter your life. You didn't ask for new birth and for change and to really be a Christian. You just got a shock and a fright and therefore a change. But none of that will stop sin. None of that will stop the original disease just getting a hold and finishing you off. None of it will. How persistent a thing sin is and how subtle, like I said, it starts outside, works its way in. But there are two special applications here. First of all, to our worship gatherings. Now, let's remember, from the morning, every time a congregation assembles in the name of the Lord, all things being equal, the Holy God is present there. It becomes a sanctuary. It becomes a temple. It doesn't matter. This place isn't ideal for worship, I know that. But in one respect, it doesn't matter that that's blue or that's yellow, that's plastic or that's brick. It doesn't matter. It's the house of God. The congregation is assembled in the name of the Lord and the sanctuary is constituted. God is in the midst. Therefore, we handle with care. It's not a temple. Well, yes, it is. If God's here, absolutely it is. That's why the apostle calls our bodies temples of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's here. Is he in your heart? Is he in your heart? A temple is where God is. And that's why we have to be careful when we come to the sanctuary. Let's say you're coming to the temple. You're coming to worship. How do you come? Do you prepare your heart to come? Do you strive to come with a reverent and respectful spirit so that you will worship God even tonight in spirit and in truth? Or do you take the business of the world into it? Did you take the shops and the bazaars and the money changers? Did you take your holiday, your commerce and even your leisure? We're told in the book of Nehemiah about people who stopped trading on the Sabbath because they had to, but the question in their heads was, when will the Sabbath be over so we can start trading? And, and maybe that's how you are tonight in God's house. And do you think of how important a thing that is, that you're actually in God's presence saying, well, I wish this was finished and I could get home? And maybe you've spent, I, hope, I really hope you haven't, but maybe you've spent the time just thinking about a holiday or your business or something else. Are we profaning God's house by that kind of worldliness? Are we robbing God of his day? Are we robbing him of his sanctuary, robbing him of his worship? And again, not just how we come to the house of God, but what is my contribution in it? Okay, I give a collection. I give my tithe. I stand for the prayer. I maybe sing in the worship, but what else? Am I yawning, fidgeting, making a noise? It's worthwhile listening to the directory of public worship, which was still one of our standards and which was composed at a time of, work, of revival. Let everyone, I'm modernizing the language just a little bit, I'm changing the meaning of nothing. Let everyone enter the congregation, not irreverently, but in a serious and appropriate manner. And public worship being begun, the people are to attend on it, not reading anything except what the minister is reading. 
abstaining from private whispering, greetings, and from gazing, staring in other words, sleeping, and other indecent behaviour which may disturb the minister or the people, or hinder themselves or hinder others in the worship of God. I'm not saying these things because I've seen those things. I'm saying them because they're there and they're things that we need to be careful about. Can I just say in connection with that, and I think it should be said in connection with this, that the, the current practice creeping into congregations of taking infants in and keeping them in whatever noise they make is, is not a good practice. There's this kind of sanctimonious piosity that that seems to think that infants get us a blessing if if they are present in the hearing of the word. Well, guess what? They don't understand the word. It's good for everyone to be in God's house. Infants are welcome in God's house, but plain common sense should tell us that if parents, if children are not at the age to accept parental discipline, and if they can't sit quietly, then they need to be trained and raised and nurtured to the place where they can. Imagine if we had 13 infants here all crying. I mean, what's the point in a word-based ministry if if that's okay? I mean, if it was a picture-based ministry, that's fine. But a word-based ministry means that we need to be attentive, yes? We need to be able to hear, we need to be able to concentrate, we need to be able to think. Some people say that there were occasions in the Bible when infants, along with their mothers, were commanded to attend. Absolutely. National occasions of fasting. Not ordinary occasions of worship, when we're told actually it was people with understanding who could gather. So, by all means, take an infant, take a child. But if they start being noisy and distracted, just just take them out until you can pacify them. In fact... I sometimes say to people, the fact that people are eventually constrained sometimes to take them out is a proof that you can take them out. Everyone acknowledges that there are times when that has to be. And let's remember that. Let's not be foolish about these things. Common sense. The infants were required on those special national occasions because the mothers were required too. So, the, the Word of God tells us, just as the directory tells us, to not to hinder ourselves or others in the service of God. But the big application, in a sense, is to our own personal spirits and to our own hearts. Paul calls, once you become converted, he says that you then, your body, your heart, becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. I know of no truth in a way that shocks me quite like that one. No truth that still has the power to arrest me in my steps quite like that one. Just the realisation that I am a temple and that God dwells in me. You as a Christian are a temple because God dwells in you. First question, what is there in here that shouldn't be here? Do I not need to ask Christ maybe to make a whip or even myself by the grace of God to make a whip and purge out of my soul just things that don't belong there anymore? Because God is calling me to holiness just as his presence in my heart is holy. Second question. What is there in my heart that 
it's okay to be there most of the time, but shouldn't be there when I'm worshipping. Like I said earlier, the business and the leisure and the new car or your dissatisfaction with your wage. Purge that out, O Lord. When I come to the house of God, let, let me give what you call me to give. Let, let me be there for these moments altogether yours. Let my ears be yours. Let my eyes be yours. Let everything be yours. And in that solemn hour of worship, let me offer myself. You offer yourself, your whole body, as a sacrifice to the Lord. Because that is your reasonable service. From there, Jesus is going to perform some signs which are not told in the Bible. A man is looking on by the name of Nicodemus, who we'll consider God willing next time. Let us pray. Lord, O God, we pray that you would grant us grace to sanctify what you have sanctified to recognise the holiness of what you have pronounced to be holy, to recognise too our own tendency to sin and our need to purge ourselves and to ask for your grace to purify us. And Lord, even tonight, if we are unconverted sinners, how we need to be transformed and changed. We ask that you would come in and presence yourself in our hearts, Create within us a new heart. Renew a right spirit in us. Turn us towards yourself and create within us that desire to be like you and to be with you, even to be holy as you are holy. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 84 from the beginning of the psalm. How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, to me! The tabernacles of thy grace, how pleasant, Lord, they be! My thirsty soul longs vehemently, yea, faints thy courts to see. My very heart and flesh cry out, O living God, for thee. Imagine the disappointment of someone who said all that and then turned up at the temple in Jesus' day. And in verse 10, For in thy courts one day excels a thousand. It's better to be one day with God than a thousand days in the tents of sin. Rather in my God's house will I keep a door than dwell in tents of sin. For God the Lord is a sun and a shield. He'll grace and glory give and will withhold no good from them that uprightly do live. First two stanzas and the last three to God's praise. Stand to sing. Oh, yeah.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.